Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. We move into an important passage in Mark's gospel today, and but yet we do not leave the theme. By the way, it's a an, sometimes an enemy to our understanding of a text to have a chapter break. From chapter 8 to chapter 9 does not mean that we leave a theme, if you will, or the theme of this text. But the theme is that Jesus is the king who's going to suffer and die for sinners. He's the king. And uh, we find in verse number 1, I'm going to jump right into the text with me, Uh, we find in verse number one, these words in Mark nine. And he said unto them, verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death. till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. This has been a, a statement here in Mark nine that has troubled Bible students, uh, for, uh, maybe I should say centuries that what does it mean, uh, here that, there's going to be some that are standing there that will not taste death. And we need to grasp this as we work our way into the uh, verses to follow. But this statement here uh, is on the backdrop of chapter 8 of Mark, where Mark had told the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer. He had to suffer, he had to die, but he would rise again. The disciples are perplexed by this because if Jesus is the King, Their view of the king, their view of the Messiah was not that Christ would suffer. And so they're troubled by this. And so in leading into this, Mark says, or excuse me, Jesus says in Mark notes that there's going to be some people here that are going to, before they die, they're going to see the kingdom of God come with power. Mark chapter 9 and verse 1 is serving as what we would call a prolepsis. It's pointing the disciples towards another event. At that same time, we see that this reference here in verse number one is telling the disciples that there's a picture of the kingdom coming. Some of them are going to witness a picture of the kingdom that is going to change them forever. What they're going to experience is our text today in verses two through eight. And so without further ado, I want to read the rest of this with you and I want you to see it and we'll work quickly today. Look back at Mark 9. I'm going to read verses 2 to 8. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Jesus answered and said, Excuse me, and Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked around about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. I want you to see the what, I, what I'm just going to do is with this text and breaking it down in, in two movements, the first thing I want you to see is in verses 2, 
all the way through verse number 6, I want you to see what I'm going to call the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son, S-O-N. Amongst the 12 disciples, there's a, an inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and the text says that this inner circle was invited by Jesus up to a high mountain. Now, the tradition has been that this high mountain is a mount called Mount Tabor, uh, but uh, many believe that to be an incorrect tradition. Uh, for various reasons I won't get into today. Not far from the city of Caesarea Philippi where Jesus had taken the disciples in Mark 8 is a truly high mountain. That high mountain is the mountain called Mount Hermon. Now, it is believed by most Bible students who have studied this thoroughly that actually Mount Hermon is the location of our text today in Mark chapter 9. We're going to kill the lights and throw a picture of Mount Hermon up on the screen for you. You see this the best you can. I'm standing on this picture. I'm standing on another mountain. And this right here is Mount Hermon. Uh, this is the one of the highest locations in, in the northern region of Israel. Uh, and uh, actually one of the northernmost regions of Israel. Uh, as uh, actually on the other side uh, over here in this region coming off the map to the right is uh, actually no longer Israel. But here we see Mount Hermon. This is believed to be the site of our passage here today. Not far this way is Caesarea Philippi. And uh, and so most people believe that Mount Hermon is, is a location. I give you that for a visible uh, help if that'll be of value to you. Now, Mark chapter 9 tells us in verse 2 that it had been about six days since Jesus had mentioned to the disciples that uh, there were going to be some that would not taste death till they had seen the kingdom of God come with power. He had also mentioned in there, in those about six days ago, about those that would uh, suffer. He asked questions like, what should it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? And now in Mark 9, we are told about Jesus taking Peter, James, and John. Matthew 17 is another text for this and speaks of this. Luke 9 also speaks of the transfiguration. But verse 2 says there that on that mountain, apart from everyone else, Jesus was transfigured before these three men. The language of was transfigured speaks of something that was done to Jesus. He was transfigured, and the responsible party for this is none other than God. What is meant by the transfiguration, Christians have long tried to tease this out and understand why this is a necessary moment. What is meant by this isn't totally clear, but the Greek word for transfiguration is the word metamorpho, which we get our English word metamorphosis. This word metamorpho is the Greek word used four times in the New Testament and every time speaks of being changed or transformed in two of the gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark, it is the Greek word used for transfigured. What we know, though, in the passage is the description of Jesus is rather incredible. In verse number three, his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow. So as no fuller on earth can white them. Matthew notes, and by the way, you're going to have to, you've got a lot of scripture there in your handout, so just try to track with me. Matthew notes in Matthew 17, his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light. What 
What happens here on the Mount of Transfiguration in front of these three disciples is the glory of Christ's divine nature shines through. It's so gloriously white, shining bright, exceeding white as snow, white as light, that Mark notes for us that no fuller on earth can white them. A, what this means is the fuller is someone who, are, who launders or something that launders clothes and cloths. That nobody could bleach these robes to get them whiter than this. Jesus is exceeding white. His face shines as the sun. His raiment as white as light. Luke notes for us in Luke 9 that Jesus' countenance was altered. Luke also writes that in this moment, the disciples had been sleeping. Mark doesn't say anything about it. Matthew doesn't say anything about it. But Luke makes sure that you know that these guys had gone up into the mountain to pray with Jesus. And while Jesus is praying, they fell asleep, something they'll do again later on. What is abundantly clear in, is that these three disciples witnessed something incredibly powerful. Now, so we need to keep in mind the context here of this event. Peter's recognition of the Messiah in Mark chapter 8 is met with the news that not only is Jesus the Messiah, but the Son of Man must suffer. The King, as we know Him now, must come with a cross. The kingdom's going to come through suffering. And so, in this moment, the three disciples get to see the veil of Christ's humanity lifted for a few moments. And they are going to witness the glory of God in Christ shining through on the Mount of Transfiguration. The writer of Hebrews says about Jesus that he is the brightness of God's glory. And these disciples witness it with their own eyes there on the mountain, a full display of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, you have to remember, this is not a new glory that was given to him. This is a glory that Jesus has always had. In John 17, Jesus prayed that the Father would glorify him with the glory uh, he said, with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This is not a new glory, but the disciples get to witness the glory that Christ has eternally had. Jesus is allowing these inner circle guys to get a glimpse of him in his full glory. In the eternal glory, which was veiled in the incarnation. And so this glory is revealed. It's going to be revealed again when Jesus comes in his second coming in Matthew 24. The Bible says, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's the glory that Christ has always had. It's the glory that is veiled in the incarnation that the disciples now witness on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the glory which the whole world will see when Christ comes again. That's what's visible on this mountain. If I may say so, it's the same glory that Moses desired to see when he was on Mount Sinai. When he said to the Lord in Matthew excuse me, in Exodus 33, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And maybe you recall the story. The Lord had told Moses that nobody could look on the Lord and live. But the Lord put Moses 
in the cliff, in the in a crevice of the rock. And the Lord would allow Moses to see the back parts of him and to witness his glory. And when Moses, after he had seen the glory of God, as God had put him in the cliff of the rock and, and hid him, and Moses saw the, the, the back of God in all of his glory, the Bible says that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, that his face, his face, his skin shone, and the children of Israel were afraid. His face was shining with such great intensity that it was the shining of the, of, of the creature who had been in the presence of God and whose face was now reflecting the radiance of God. But Moses' face was not the source of the light, but rather the light of God was rebounding off the face of Moses. But that's not what happened in the Mount of Transfiguration. Now stay with me. That's not what happened in the Mount of Transfiguration. The intense brightness like the sun that transforms Jesus so that even his garments become whiter than snow, whiter than anybody can possibly launder them to be, indicates not a reflection, but that Jesus is truly the source of the light. He is the one who's radiating his glory for these disciples. And all through the Bible, all through Scripture, we see that manifestation of the glory of God. In the Old Testament, it's referred to as the Shekinah glory. It's the brilliant flaming cloud that attended the presence of God. It's the bright light that blinded Saul of Tarshish on the road to Damascus when out of the light Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And now on this mountain, Christ's divine nature floods before these disciples. Jesus' glory shines forth in a purity of whiteness that contains no spot, no wrinkle, no blemish. It is the overwhelming manifestation of his deity and these three witness it. But if this moment couldn't get any more incredible, the passage says that Jesus has two people appear there with him. Now maybe we kind of did a fast takeoff here and you're still trying to catch up. But in all of this brightness of his glory, now the, the three men who were once sleeping are now looking on. And there is Elijah and Moses. And Mark uh, 9.4 says, and they were talking with Jesus. So there on the mountain, Jesus' brightness, His divine nature is shining forth. And Jesus is talking with two guys from the Old Testament. Elias, Elijah, and Moses. Elijah and Moses. They're huddled together and they're having a conversation. And if you wonder what they're talking about, Luke 9 tells us, what they were talking about, the verse, verse 31 says that they spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah is about what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem. Those two guys knew that Jesus had to die and that he would die. Moses, who's the honored leader of the 
the most honored leader of the nation of Israel, was the human author of the first five books of the Old Testament. He had, God had given the law through Moses. Elijah is standing there because Elijah is the most ardent guardian of the Mosaic law. He fought against Israel's violation of the law, and he did so with boldness. And in this moment, they're both a grand, powerful representation of the old covenant. The covenant that God had made with Israel at Mount Sinai when Moses saw the glory of God. It's in this moment that Peter chimes in. Verse 5. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. I'm not sure totally what to say to this, but it, it's humorous to me. It's, it's an uncomfortable moment, right? We've got this, the Savior, who's the King, who's told him he's going to die. He's now shining with all of his glory. And Moses and Elijah are there. And Peter just walks in. He's like, hey, guys, Master, I just want to know, I'm really happy I get to see this. Uh, Jesus, it's really awesome that I'm here. I just want to say that. The end of verse 6 in Mark 9, the, 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 the language of verse 6 is that Peter wist not what to say. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to do. And Peter's one of those guys that in the awkward moments, he has to say something, right? I don't know what to say, so I'm just going to say, hey, Jesus, I'm really glad to be here. And the Bible says that they were so afraid. That language of so afraid happens a couple times in the New Testament. Maybe you can remember this like I do, that the angels in the announcement of Jesus' birth were so afraid in Luke 2. In his fear, Peter is saying, Jesus, it's so awesome that we're here. It's good for us to be here. Here's what we're going to do, Jesus. We're so glad to be here. We're going to build three tabernacles. We're going to make three tabernacles, Jesus. Peter, who's so full of great ideas, right? He was, he was the one in Mark 8 to rebuke Jesus for saying he's going to die. Is now on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus and these two men are talking. Peter walks up and he interrupts their staff meeting and he says, Hey, um, it's good to be here. I'm going to build you guys a couple tabernacles. Each, each of you a tabernacle. Because in this moment, what we don't realize is that Israel had been waiting for a time when God would once again dwell amongst his people, just as he did in the Exodus. And so maybe Peter's thinking, let's go ahead and build this tabernacle now. And Jesus, we're going to build one for you, we're going to build one for Moses, and we're going to build one for Elijah, which, by the way, reveals that Peter still did not grasp who Jesus was. Peter doesn't need himself a tabernacle. He's good. He'll just let them have him. He'll put his head on a rock. But what Peter fails to realize here is that Jesus doesn't need a tabernacle. He doesn't need a tabernacle because Jesus is the tabernacle of God who has come to dwell with his people. In John chapter 1, verse 14, very appropriately, we see these words, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The literal representation is that he tabernacled with us like he did in the wilderness. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Now, maybe you're still trying to catch your breath with everything going on here, but let me explain it to you quickly. On the Mount of Transfiguration with the inner circle, the glory of Christ shines forth. Elijah and Moses are there. Peter wants to build a few tabernacles. And now, these guys, Peter, James, and John, have no idea what's going on. And they are scared. Well, if they were scared there, they're about to get more scared. Because I want you to see the second part of this. Not only do we see the glory of the Son, but we see the voice of the Father. Look at verse 7. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. By the way, there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of biblical representation in this passage. We see the representation of Mount Sinai. We see the representation of the disciples being afraid like the shepherds were. We see now the representation of a cloud overshadowing them. Like a like Mary was overshadowed in Luke chapter 1 when she was told that the Holy Ghost will come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. There's a lot of moments of Scripture that run all the way to the, the transfiguration. And this cloud symbolizes as well the divine presence that that speaks to Jesus and the disciples. It's again reminiscent of God calling Moses up to Mount Sinai to give him the tables of stone and of the law, the Ten Commandments. You see that in Exodus 24, where Moses went up into the mountain and a mount, and excuse me, and a cloud covered the mount. And here's the words, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. And so here we see it, the Mount of Transfiguration, the cloud again. As God is speaking. Look what happens in verse 7. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. In Matthew's narrative, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Luke's narrative, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. I don't know about you. I legitimately do not know how I would respond in that moment. Jesus shining in all of his glory. Elijah and Moses talking with him. Now they're gone. And the cloud overshadows the mountain and God the Father speaks. And there you've got Peter and James and John. And the cloud overshadows the mountain. And Matthew says, when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and we're sore afraid. I think the only appropriate human response to experiencing the presence of God in this way is actually to be afraid. To stand in awe of the glory of God in this moment. 
and there on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples, the inner circle, they get a vision in that moment of the kingdom of God. What these three witnessed was not a dream, not a vision of their minds, but an experience of God's presence that had not happened since Adam and Eve experienced God's presence in the garden. There had not been a moment like this since Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. There had not been a moment like this since the garden and the father who comes, who, who, whose cloud overshadows the mountain comes down into the moment and says to the disciples, this is my beloved son, hear him. He never said it about Moses. He never said it about Elijah, but he said it about Jesus. And this again, another fulfillment of scripture because in Deuteronomy 18, Moses speaking says to the children of Israel, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a capital P prophet. The Lord, will, the, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of, the, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Moses, all the way back in Deuteronomy, had told the children of Israel that God was going to raise up a prophet, the Messiah, and that prophet, they were to listen to him. They were, if you will, to hear him. Here's the reality. Listen. They had already heard Jesus. They had heard Jesus on the way to Caesarea Philippi when he said, the Son of Man must suffer and die. And Peter rebuked him. They didn't want this king. They didn't want a savior like this. They wanted their victorious Messiah to rule, but they didn't want their king to die. Jesus and these three with God the Father speaking, they're told, this is my beloved son, hear him. The Father is calling them to listen to hear Him. The context drives the meaning here. Jesus must die, but that He will rise again. Hear Him. Listen to Him. As this grand moment comes to a conclusion, the disciples look around. Verse 8, the Bible says, they saw no man anymore. Notice these words. Save Jesus only. With themselves. There's no Moses. There's no Elijah. The cloud is gone. The Father is done speaking. And there stands Jesus. Now please don't, don't miss this. For centuries, Christians have been debating the purpose, the purpose of the transfiguration. Let me give you something, and then we'll lead into conclusion. Why is Jesus standing here alone and there are no Old Testament characters? Why is the great Moses and the great Elijah gone? Because the only one with permanent standing is Jesus. Moses and Elijah have no permanent standing. Only Jesus does. 
Jesus is the complete fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Jesus is the final word, the final revelation. All that God is accomplishing is being done through Jesus, his, his son. And so when the father says, hear him, it's because as Jesus is speaking, as Jesus is working, as Jesus is accomplishing, the father is calling all of us to hear this revelation. So, there on the Mount of Transfiguration, the inner circle sees Jesus. The veil of his humanity is lifted for a few moments and they witness his glory. They witness him talking with Moses and Elijah, talking about the death that he is going to die in Luke chapter 9. And then the cloud hovers over the mountain and the Father speaks, and now the moment is done. So we've seen what happens. Let's think now about why it happened. Let me give you three statements. I think you have them. Number one, in Jesus' call to follow him, he does not leave his followers for glory, but invites them to participate in his glory. There's something unique about what happens here in Mark 9. Bear with me and, and try to fix your attention here. In Mark 9, as opposed to Matthew 17 and Luke 9, the language constantly, and you can look at this for yourself, the language constantly speaks of Jesus being with them. With them. With themselves. Well, Jesus had just told them to follow him. He said, if any man follow me, let him take up his cross. Or any man come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. And so now Jesus, who has told them he's going to die, who told them he's going to rise again, now Jesus is saying to them, in the moment of the transfiguration, he is saying to them, I am not going to leave you for glory and abandon you, but the rest of your Christian life, the rest of your discipleship will always be with Jesus to glory. To glory. Neither Matthew or Luke highlight this, but Mark is encouraging in his, in his gospel, Mark is encouraging Christians who are in the city of Rome or in the region around Rome when he's writing this, and the audience has been persecuted for their discipleship. The Christians around Rome at the time of Mark's writing had been facing incredible persecution for being disciples of the Lord Jesus. And so the reminder that is given here by Mark in the inspired scripture is that Jesus' call to discipleship is an invitation to participate in and to enjoy and to anticipate the glory of Christ that we have now in a veiled sense, but the full glory that we get in eternity. But the hard part is absolutely that suffering must come first. The Son of Man must suffer. Christians must suffer. But we do so knowing that glory awaits us. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, fittingly to the church at Rome with which Mark had been writing, he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now I say this to you in our discipleship Christian, as you and I work through this the stretch of the already but not yet. We suffer and we weep and we, we hurt and we wonder why is our discipleship not easier? 
We have been invited to, yes, to enjoy Christ now, but we look forward to the eternal glory that awaits us, knowing that suffering isn't all of it. Discipleship is not you apart from Jesus, it's you with Jesus. He takes you up to the mountain. And in discipleship, Jesus shows you. He shows you His glory. He gives you a glimpse into the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And He reminds you that full glory awaits. Take heart in that today. Take comfort in that. Secondly, the transfiguration shows the Christian that the whole of the Bible points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, you got to get this if, if you want to be a student of the Bible. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. The point of the transfiguration is, is to say that everything that Moses did, all the law that Moses brought, it all was pointing to Christ. For only Jesus could fulfill all the righteous demands of God's law. Elijah being there is a representation of the greatest prophet, so to speak, who fought courageously for the purity of the law in Israel. But not even Elijah can shine the shoes of Jesus. See, the whole of the Bible, the Old Testament with Moses, the Old Testament with, with the law and the prophets of Elijah, they're all pointing us to Jesus. Which interestingly, when the person who's interested in Christianity or the Bible says that they think the teachings of the Bible are beneficial or they think that the law is beneficial or they think that even Jesus' expression of the law throughout the Sermon on the Mount and other places are beneficial, what they fail to realize is they, they misinterpret the point of that. The point of the law was to tell you that you need someone to keep it for you. You need a law keeper. And so Moses is not telling you to come be like Moses. Moses calls you to come to the law and realize and confess, I can't do it. Who can? The only one left standing on the mountain. The whole of the Bible calls you and me to see Jesus. The Father says, hear him. Hear Him. Look at Him. Do what He says. To go to the law without going to Christ is defeating. But to go to the law and then go to Christ is the gospel. For Moses and Elijah served to direct us to Christ. Which leads me to the third and final point. Jesus stands alone on the Mount of Transfiguration because He alone will go to the cross and rise from the grave to purchase our redemption. I hope you notice that in the passage. Who was left standing? Just Jesus. Who do you need? Just Jesus. Who is it that went to the cross for you? Just Jesus. Who do you need to go to the cross for you? Just Jesus. 
You see, Christians are to be an only Jesus people. You don't need Moses standing there on your behalf. You don't need Elijah standing on your behalf. You need Jesus. And I need Jesus. Only Jesus in keeping the law fights for God's law. Only Jesus stands as the final revelation of God. Why? Because only Jesus has gone to the cross. Only Jesus has suffered for your sins. Only Jesus has paid for your sins. Only Jesus is raised from the dead. And only Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 1, who, speaking of Jesus being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. When he, by himself, who was standing? Only Jesus. Let me remind you, the heart of the Christian message is actually this. You ready? It's never been you. It's never been your effort. It's never been your love for neighbor. It's never been your good vibes, your mantra chanting, your philanthropy, your service, your rituals, your confessions, your confirmations, your communion, your baptism, your prayer, your beads, your candles, your church attendance, being a good person, paying God back, paying it forward. It's not Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, Vishnu, Brahma, Shiva, Zoroaster, the Virgin Mary, Greek gods, Roman gods, Chinese mythological or Japanese mythological gods. It is only Jesus. It's only Jesus. And only Jesus stands on the mountain because he finished the work. Only Jesus. Many years ago, we coined that phrase around here, and people wonder why. Because Christians are good at adding Moses. And you're good at adding every other so-called hero of the Bible. But when it comes down to it, standing on the mountain, it is only Jesus. It's only Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus lived sinlessly, something that you and I could never do. And living sinlessly, he went to a cross. The perfect son of God surrendered himself to hands that he had made. They put him on the cross. they, 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 They tortured him. They crucified him and they murdered him. He was buried in a grave, but three days later he rose again. And he did so to save you and me from the wrath of God to come. There is no gospel in any other place only than Jesus. That's it. There is no good news in work your way to heaven. There is only good news in Jesus. And if you're here today, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you to see myself, one of our deacons, pastors after the service, and let us introduce you to the man who stands on the mountain alone. The man who went to the cross alone. And let us tell you how you can be saved from your sins. If you're here today and you are a Christian, What becomes the driving beat of your life? The man who stands alone. Jesus.
Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.